Welcome to the Refuge Project. The Refuge Project is a place we can have meaningful conversation in a safe place. We are your hosts. I am Pastor David. We got James here. Hey, hey. And we got some special stand-in hosts today. We got Brother Calvin. What's going on? Lee. What up? And we have just a special, special guest with us today, Brother Travis Moffitt with us. Hello. Thanks for coming in, man. How you guys doing? Doing I'm good. I'm tired. Tired? And hungry. Yeah. But I'm good. I heard you out there jamming on the uh, the stage. I guess y'all got something going on tonight. Yeah, we're supposed to. Well, no, it's Wednesday, but Wednesday this night? is uh, this was the time we had to practice. So, man, you had all the gear out there. I was jealous. Like, I thought you was a DJ or something. So much gear. Everybody says that, but it really has nothing to do with DJ. But uh, no, but you you do all the button pushing. You do everything, but Eric, uh-huh. Eric, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, we were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were rocking it for sure. Yeah, I heard the do, 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 do mm-hmm. all the way in here. So sounded good. That's what I was going for. Very good. So that's kind of DJ-ish. That's very DJ-ish. Calvin, how you doing today? I am good. I'm good. It's uh, I, I don't even know what day it is half the time anymore. But, uh, uh-huh. hey, I'm here. We're rocking with it. Love the convocation. It's just been great. Uh, all the messages have, have just really been phenomenal, right to the heart. I have no idea that God is doing some massive changing going on, you know, all over the world. Right. Um, so I'm I'm ready for the rest of it. I'm ready for the rest of it. Yeah, it's been exciting, man. We got all these champions here this week. We got uh, Brother Travis. He just laid two great messages on us between last night and this morning and all the work that he's doing over there in Honduras. We got Lee. What's up, Lee? What's up? What's, what's up, Lee? I'm good. You know, I'm good. I'm just... Uh... While James is practicing, I want to get something to eat. I know he's hungry, but I'm full. <laughs> you know, I need some, some brisket and some chocolate cake. So, Well, I appreciate you guys, man. I know, man, that this is this convocation for Elam just means a, a whole lot to us, and especially guys for like you guys that would take off, you know, uh, off of work for this week to come in here and serve. I, I really appreciate it. We couldn't do it without all of the, the, the servants of, of the Lord taking the, their vacation and stuff. So appreciate you guys coming out. Well, that was definitely my pleasure on that one. Right? <laughs> I know Calvin's been, he, he's kind of like me. We've been working 16, 18 hour days for a while now and just to get the, a few days off and um, well, we say a few days off. You take a vacation to come up here and work, but uh, great. It's, a, it's a little bit better than, you know, the, the, the normal job, right? Well, very cool. Um, So let's just jump right into. Culture Corner. There you go, man. You played a different one this time? I did. I queued up the wrong one, so I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) That's okay. Um, (laughs) Nobody would have known unless you would have said something. So here we are. (laughs) (laughs) No, so. On this culture quarter today, I have the the Supreme Court uh, just ruled in the favor of a North Carolina student um, that he is allowed to preach on the campus. Eight to one vote. Wow. Yeah. uh, He was preaching on the campus. Uh, They told him that he wasn't allowed to. They actually told him if he did any more preaching on the campus that he was going to be expelled from school and his scholarship taken away. What do you mean by preaching? Like having services or just like talking? Having services, preaching on the corner, the whole nine yards. He was just doing ministry. And he was a a gentleman. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce his name. He was from Africa, got a scholarship to come over to America to go to school. Um, and he, as, as a young child, his, uh, his mother 
fell in love with the Lord and began to raise him up as a Christian. And he came to America living the American dream. And then he found himself in the, the greatest courts of America, you know, in the Supreme Court, <laughs> trying to fight for the right to, to tell people about Jesus. And um, so the court, the court case was basically saying that he has now he has the right to sue for damages. Mm. Nice. And uh, and his lawyer was talking about basically, listen, we don't want a bunch of money. You know, we don't, it's not, that's not an important thing, but we want to be able to go back to the college and, re, and get him re-admitted um, to the colleges and for him to be able to, be able to continue to do his ministries and those type of things, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting in America. Because the American, if he would have a true American, if I'm an American, we're going to get the million dollar first, mm-hmm. and then we're going to worry about going back to, you know, ministry or whatever it may be. I know that's not, I, I put a, a blanket over American Christians, but... Uh, a lot of times, that's what you see. You see, you know, we're we're going to go after the money first. But it was just a, a good feel for him to be able to do the things that he wanted to do and uh, get back to what he was he was called to do, and that's preach the gospel to his community. Did it say who uh, like who got mad at him in the first place? Was it like the dean, or were like students complaining, or what was it? And they didn't say how who was complaining, but it went through a uh, investigation at the school first. And then that when he got kicked out after the investigation, that's when he got a, a lawyer involved, and yeah. uh, it went through all the courts, all the way to the Supreme Court before, wow. before they uh, finally said, "No, yeah. he has the right to do what he's going to do," and uh, and he can sue for damages too. Yeah, good for him. It's so, pretty amazing that we have missionaries coming from other countries back into America and preaching the gospel. Yeah. You yeah, know, it's where nuts. America has been, you know, the the country that sends out the most missionaries, you know, just historically, but here we have people coming back into America to preach the gospel and they're getting in trouble. Well, not only coming here but having to stand up to our court system to say, "Hey, yeah, let us do that." It's normally you hear these stories as Americans going overseas and getting in trouble with their governments and, and doing those things. And now here it is the opposite way, you know, this might be a dumb question, but when y'all say damages, what, what, what kind of damages? Financial damages. Oh, okay. Yeah. He just, they said he can sue for whatever normal damages will be. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure there's some type of thing that's already happened. They can look back on other cases and stuff. They can say, Hey, you know, the last time this happened, they got, Five million bucks, so you can. We'll start there, and then we'll kind of figure it out from there. So, my thing is, I'm not my son. He's 15, and he goes, "Can you sue for that?" He's always like, "Can you sue for that?" I'm like, "Bro, just chill out. Like, we don't have. That's just wrong with America right now. Like, everybody's going around suing every time they get their feelings hurt, right? Yeah. But it's almost like, so what is the right thing? Do you sue for the money? Um. Surely he's getting his his education free now, but what could he do with three million dollars? If he's, I mean, if he's really his heart is where it is, he can take that three million dollars or five million dollars or ten million dollars and reinvest it back in the kingdom and do some big things. So uh, I'm not one of those guys that always wants to sue, but I think that we can. I, I think you might even said something about your message today or last night or something about that. Take that stuff and and um, like invest it into the kingdom. You know, uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Brother Travis, you got anything to say on that one? I think, you know, like you were just saying, whenever there's an opportunity that you're blessed, you know, you have an opportunity to invest that back into the kingdom. But the real issue, 
you know, on this situation is, does he have an opportunity to continue to preach the gospel? You know, what he's standing up for at the end of the day, like you described, David, is not about that he's going to get some money or, you know, and it'll be great and rightfully so that justice is served and he's even able to get back in school. But he's using the environment that he's in, the platform that he has and the environment, uh, you know, where he's at in school to be able to preach the gospel. And the reality is, is that's really what we should all be doing wherever we're at, you know, whether that's in school or that's in the workplace or whatever. So I think. You know, in this case, we'd have to say, hey, good on the Supreme Court. They made the right decision to say, look, you have a voice. If you want to share your voice for the gospel, by all means, go and do it. Yeah. So it's good. It's pretty interesting. Um, It had to get all the way to the Supreme Court before before they said, you know, hey, you have the right to say whatever you want to say. You know what I'm saying? It's like, come on, this is this is America, right? This is free speech. Hey, but who knows? Like, I always like. where it's, I can't remember where it is, but, you know, in the Bible it talks about, like, what the devil wants to use for evil, God will use for good. Mm-hmm. You know, with this one, who knows what he might end up getting because of them suing him. He might get $3 million for damages that now he can use for, you know, furthering the gospel, right. which he wouldn't have had if nobody had sued him in the first place. So you never know how it's going to go with it. But but even if it's not money, because money is not always always the good that we get. Yeah. Right. So what has happened now, if this case has gone all the way to the Supreme Court, now there's federal national precedent Mm -hmm. that says it's okay to preach the gospel on your college campus. Mm -hmm. You know, because sometimes as citizens in the United States, we can get confused about what the law is. Mm -hmm. So can I go and talk about God here? Is it okay if I carry my Bible somewhere? Is it okay if I go and pray somewhere? Well, this is a school. This is a public property or this is, you know, I don't know what school it was. Maybe it was a state school or something like that. Um, and so there's always that question. So when you have a case like this that gets all the way to the Supreme Court, now there's a federal precedent That's right. that says you can preach the gospel. So oftentimes laws are uh, evaluated how they apply currently based on what the precedent is. Mm-hmm. So the good out of this, if it's the money, hey, great. Yeah. you know. But it, additionally, it's not only a blessing for him, it'll be a blessing for every other college campus preacher who says i've got something to say now there's a federal precedent that allows that to be able to continue they're empowered now by the supreme court to be able to go out on their campuses because of this instance what the devil meant for evil and trying to stop him has actually created you know other people to be able to go out on their campuses all across the nation here so right and that's that's how god works i mean we think sometimes we're being brought into persecution and Yes, there is persecution that happens around the world, but oftentimes that's an opportunity for us as believers to be able to say, here's the mandate from God that I'm living by, and then you see God establish a victory, like in this particular case, and now it's, you know, maybe it's even better for the next college campus preacher. Yeah. You know? And the platform, I mean, we're talking about them right now, you know? Exactly. And the Lord's going to hopefully open up a platform for this gentleman to get his education. And then who knows, maybe he's going to go overseas and be able to take a a larger ministry and go into the highways and byways. And he's already overseas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's on foreign soil already. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right. Well, that's a a good story to open with. It's just some, you know, We've been through some crazy times, and it's just good to hear some of those things that are working out for the kingdom instead of any persecution or what we call persecution in America anyways, right? Mm-hmm. All right, we got a song for y'all today. Calvin, tell us about this song. 
This song, uh, Chris McClarney, I love this song. I'm listening. Uh, it came on the radio one day, and it just caught my attention at a really rough time. My grandmother had just passed away. Uh, my uncle was was in charge of the funeral, in charge of getting things straightened out, and he was having a very hard time emotionally. He had basically set it up to where it was going to be just uh, me and my wife and him at my grandmother's funeral service. He didn't want anybody else there. And I said, you know, my grandmother deserved better than that. And I really, I got angry. But as this song came on, I, I just could feel the Lord telling me he's hurting, you know, be compassionate, be gentle, you know, don't come in with some mad rebuke. And uh, from that point on, you know, it was an opportunity for growth. And my grandmother got to have a wonderful service. You know, we got other family involved that that uh, everybody got to be a part of. And uh, so this song is just near and dear to my heart. All right, let's check it out. Chris McCarty, I'm listening for Chin Holland. When you speak, confusion fades. Just a word And suddenly I'm not afraid Cause you speak And freedom reigns There is hope In every single word you say Not to get lost in that song, man. I thought you were gonna that's start awesome. crying over there, I'm man. I'm telling you, that's a good one. I was Chris. about to start singing mine this mic. <laughs> <laughs> Chris McCartney, I'm listening, featuring Holland. I like Holland. I love it. That whole album is good. Yeah, it's good. He reminds me of the guy from Green Day. I'm not Green Day. Uh, third Day. <laughs> Uh, way different, way different. Yeah. Didn't know you were a Green Day guy. Dude. I, I, I never was a Green. I don't even know if I ever heard more than Secrets two songs coming out. Man. <laughs> they want to be in America. Uh, a third day. Uh, oh my goodness. Anyways, that's a good one, man. Yeah, it it's a good one. one. I think a lot of times we get we get uh, in that position where life comes so fast, and, and we, we're so busy doing some things that I'm working on a, a message about being too busy, you know, 
and uh, how we we don't hear God's voice and God's just speaking speaking to us or trying to speak to us, and we wonder why we can't hear God's voice. And you know, it's one of those things that I was at a time in my life where I, I was mad at God, and I was I I was I was yelling out, "God, where are you at? You know, where have you been? You know, I'm in this situation right now." And the time in my life that I that I think that I heard God's audible voice, he said, I've been here the whole time. You turned your back to me. Man, uh, I was in a jail cell, man. I just began to weep. The only time that I ever wept, uh, well, actually, the, the only other time, I, there was one time after that when my son told me, Daddy, I want to stay with you. Uh, I'm going to start crying over that one already. Every time I talk about that one, I cry. But it was one of those times where, I understood like the things that God is trying to speak to us on a daily basis, but our life's too busy. Absolutely. We're too busy for God. And then we wonder why God's not speaking to us and why there's this, this interference right between us and the savior. So um, great song, great song, great song. Yeah. Man, we just got all deep real quick, huh? Man, we haven't got started yet. Know it. Let's get, let's get right into it. I know, uh, Travis, he's got a, a flight to catch here in a little bit, but brother, just some great messages. Like I said earlier, Thanks, that you Ken. that you that uh, you uh, gave us last night and this morning. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I read your bio and and um, kind of the same thing that I done. I kind of transitioned from corporate America into ministry, and probably like me, we've done both of them at the same time for yeah. some years. Uh, so tell us a little bit how that happened and how you kind of got into the, the mission field. I know uh, your dad's been in ministry for a long, long time. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my parents have been in full-time prison ministry. It's like 46 years or something like that, 45 years. I mean, a very long time. Um, you know, so I grew up in a home, in a Christian home. I grew up, you know, with my parents going into prison and, and being focused on ministry. I uh, went to Christ for the Nations, a school, a Bible school in Dallas. That's where my parents had also graduated from. Met my wife there, my beautiful wife. Uh, we've been married today now for 26 years, five months, and eight days. So we're, wow. you know, getting to know each other a little bit. And yeah, uh, that's making the rest of us look bad. You know what I'm saying? I got to, you know, I got to do what I can, man. So, uh, um, but while in school, I started working for a company um, in the furniture industry, actually based out of Houston. It was their, their, their headquarters are right here in Houston. And uh, I stayed with them for 17 years and just had a great career. It was just really a, a fantastic time. And the, the, the tie-in really kind of comes back to my dad. I always knew at some point in time that I would, I would start moving towards ministry and towards full-time ministry, but I just didn't know how that was going to look, right? So uh, while I was still had this job, we had moved to Florida and uh, had moved up in the company and doing very well and, and had a lot of employees and, and kind of overseeing a big department of our, of our company. My father had a heart attack. And uh, when I was um, about 16 years old, I really felt impressed. The Lord had told me to wash my dad's feet one time. He, he was out ministering. I was traveling with him and felt like the Lord said, I want you to wash his feet. And so I, I didn't do it because I thought, well, that's weird. And uh, so I asked my dad later, I'm like, what does it mean if you wash somebody's feet? And he, and he said, well, it means that you're committing to serve them. And I'm like, nah, nah. now that I understand it, I know I'm not doing that, right? <laughs> right. So, so now fast forward, you know, I'm like 30 years old or so. And uh, I, I go to the hospital there where my dad's at. 
And, you know, if you've ever seen somebody right after they've had a, a heart attack, it's just, you know, tubes coming out of everywhere. And he's hooked up to all these machines and he's three shades of gray. And it's just a weird situation, right? So I'm like, dang, if he dies and I, I have n- never washed his feet, then, you know, how do I resolve that with God, right? So I'm like, I better just do it. Just in case, you know. <laughs> so I mean, like, I don't want him to get that insurance. I don't want him to die right, but I need to make sure I got my bases covered, you know, because I don't know, you know, it's just this sort of weird kind of deal. So I'm like, okay, so I wash his, I wash his feet right there in the hospital, and when I got back home uh, to Florida after that, you know, a couple of days later, everything just seemed different. Everything just seemed. There was just a change, and I didn't understand it in the moment. I can look back on it now and realize, okay, that was just a heart change. God just changed something in my heart, I think, through that act of obedience. And uh, it was a short time after that, we were involved in a, in a church there in, in, in uh, Tampa called Morningstar Church, and the pastor, his grandfather, had been a missionary in Honduras for many, many years, and at this point, his, his grandfather had already passed away. And uh, so the church was a young church, maybe about two years old, and they were deciding, hey, we want to take our first missions trip. And so we were a part of that. And we're like, hey, well, let's go to Honduras. That's where your grandfather was. And uh, that's where he sort of finished his ministry. Let's go there. So we get on a plane. There's like 16 of us, I think, my wife and I and her youngest brother, Javier, and a bunch of other people from the church. And we fly down to Honduras. And then it was just like, that was it. Mm. I mean, it was just, I was done. I was like wrecked. And... um I remember walking through this village. We were in a, in a community called Kasuna, which is populated by an African people group called the Garifuna people. And on the first day, we're walking through there, and this little boy comes and just puts his hand right in my hand. And I uh, come to find out his name is Julio. He and I are still friends. And uh, But Julio just held my hand for a week. We just walked around town together. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish at the time. And, and um, he just became my, my buddy. And really what happened, David, is we just fell in love with the people. And uh, so I remember when we were on the plane flying home, I told my wife, I said, well, when we get home, we can just sell everything and move to Honduras. And she's like, hey, tranquilo, gringo, you know, take it easy, man. You better slow slow your roll a minute. And um, yeah, I got it all figured out. You know, we're just going to move to Honduras. It's going to be great. We're going to live on the beach and drink coconut. Easy, easy. Yeah, easy, man. So we we uh, we come back and we became the missions directors for that church and then we were back and forth to Honduras every six months for about four or five years or so and then uh, we we moved back to Dallas for a little while worked with my parents in their prison ministry and then uh, ten years ago this year so in 2011 there was this whole idea of just real. Uh, collaborative, sustainable international efforts was just churning inside of us, being myself, my wife, her brother Javier, and then his wife, uh, Danielle. And so the four of us, we were like, there's just something inside of us, and we've got to, we've got to birth it. We've got to launch this thing. And so we went to my parents, and I said, look, you know, I know we're, we're all working for you right now, but we've got to go, and we, we've got to do this. And they were like, yep, do it. You know, we can see this, and this is what's in your heart. And so that was the start. We started Connect Global and immediately went back to Honduras. We started building aquaponic systems at that time. And really, we started just looking for the needs. Wherever the needs were, we would uh, try to find a, a, a need that people had and then just step into that and try to meet the needs. So we started with aquaponic systems, uh, building those out in uh, the Garifuna areas of Honduras, which you know, everything about Honduras, that's like 
the end of the world kind of area. I mean, that's, you know, think jungle village, mud huts, thatch roof, no electricity, that sort of deal. That's where we started and worked, you know, with the Garifuna people for many, many years in that community. We're still connected with them. But some of our geographic focuses in Honduras have shifted into uh, into some other parts. So now kind of our main center in Honduras is in the city of La Ceiba, which is the third largest city in Honduras. It's up on the north coast. And then from there, we do work all over the country of Honduras. And then God's opened doors for us uh, to work in Cuba and in Pakistan and in Spain and, and in various different nations. Um, so it's just been a blessing. Let me let me ask you, and I think you mentioned even some of this on the on the platform. How do you how do you go over there? And you, you said you identify the needs, right? How do you do that without saying this is what works in America? This will work for you too, because we yeah. we know that's not sustainable long term for them, right? right? Right. No, that's a great question, and and that's tricky. So uh, first of all, there's a there's a biblical principle. That in missions is oftentimes referred to as the man of peace, right? So Jesus, when he's sending his disciples out, what does he say? He says, you guys, you know, take two of, two of you guys, y'all go to the next village. And if you meet somebody there and your peace rests on them. In other words, if you can have a, a peaceable conversation, there's some sort of connection. Then stay with that person. Stay in that community. Stay with that person. If you can't find somebody like that, you move on to the next to the next community. So for us, there's always been a man of peace. There's always been a person of, of peace. We'd come into a community. So like when we moved into La Ceiba, we met a man named Alan Lorenzana. He was a pastor there. And I knew within five minutes of meeting this guy, this is, this is our person of peace here in this community. And so when we sit down with, uh, with a national leader, we sit down with somebody in their country. I mean, you got to remember, we're guests in their country, right? So it, it can be easy, like what you're alluding to, to sort of show up as like, hey, you know, we're the we're the we're the cowboys, you know, we're the Texans, we're the U- USA, and we're going to come and fix it. And it's like that's totally the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. So we would just sit down with somebody from their country and say, we're guests here, we're students here, we're trying to learn. What do you need? And usually the answer is, oh, you know, whatever you can bring us, we'll be happy with whatever. And so it takes a little time, it takes a little further dialogue to say, okay, that's great. I appreciate the kindness of your answer, the hospitality, but beyond whatever I could bring, what do you actually need? Right. And as you sit down over a cup of coffee, over a few meals, and you start having conversation with people, and you start getting to know people in genuine relationships, you can start to identify what the actual needs are. Then it's on you, right, as the missionary. So if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I want to get involved in missions work, I want to be a missionary, you have to come into situations like that realizing Everything I do in this country is going to have some amount of impact, either positive or negative. So how do I work in such a way that I'm leaving something that's sustainable by the people here that builds dignity into people? Because people don't mind being helped, but nobody wants to be patronized, right? And so you you have to work in such a way that you're building dignity in people, that you're dealing with people like they're your brothers, you know, or, or, or like your sisters or like their family versus, well— I'm superior to you in, in some way. Right. And so if you really come in with that attitude of service and of creating a genuine relationship where it's not one of us is better than the other, but we're just two you know, buddies trying to figure out a solution to this problem, then you, you make a lot more progress that way that's sustainable long term. Yeah, that's good. So you don't just show up and be like, get out of the way. I'm here to save bum, the day. Bum, bum. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, when, you, when, you, when you commit your life and finances and, and you're, you're, you know, 
a lot of times you guys are here in the United States raising money. And then yep. when you go overseas, you, you want sustainable change, right? You don't right. want just to say, hey, let's just throw a bunch of Band-Aids on everything. But we, let's get to the root of the issue. And I think that if we, if I hear what you're saying, that's just not in the mission fields. Like if we were talking to our brothers in, in our communities, like, okay, how can we make sustainable change in our community? How can we do those things without the church spinning its wheels and just giving out some, you know, some bread today, but how can we find jobs? How can we promote education and a lot of those things that sustainable issues that you can raise a family on? Right. That's exactly right. And and again, that doesn't matter what the borders are. Right. That doesn't have to be, I live in the U.S. and I went to another country, so now I'm a missionary. You know, or like the guy we talked about before. He's from Africa. He comes to the United States. That's great. And I wholeheartedly believe there is a biblical and still current precedent for sending cross-cultural missionaries, both in short-term and in long-term capacities. And I know not everybody agrees with that, but that's the truth. Let's say that again. I believe that there's still both a biblical and a current precedent to send missionaries, both short-term and long-term. And I know not everybody agrees with that. Right. You know, people say, well, short-term missions is bad. It just causes damage. No, that's not true. Short-term mission trips either cause damage or are positively productive. There's no such thing, I believe, as an impact-neutral missions trip. You take a week-long mission trip. If you don't know it left a positive impact, then you left a negative impact. But you can plan the trip in such a way that you can leave a positive impact on the field. The key is building genuine relationships, like actually, like in the same way that you would have a friend here in the United States, right? So you guys are all buddies. You guys all go to Elam Church. You guys all kind of work together, and so you guys are friends. So if y'all were here recording this podcast or you're going to go out for pizza, you're going to be friends. So when you go to the foreign field and you meet somebody, just because they speak Spanish or just because they speak Garifuna or just because their skin's lighter or darker than yours doesn't mean you can't have that same sort of friendship. You can't have that same sort of collaborative relationship. That's if good. when people go to 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 another uh, community, uh, whether that's internationally, whether that's, you know, across the street, you know, you're just going to be a good guest. Right. So you go to visit somebody in their house. You're not going to be like, well, let me tell you how to reorganize your house, you know, so that it can be more efficient. It's like you just don't do that stuff. Right. So we shouldn't do that on the mission field. We should go as guests. We should go as students and we should go with the idea of cultivating genuine relationships. It's those genuine relationships where you create the synergy that helps you create new ideas. So I don't want to bring the United States to Honduras. I want to collaborate with Hondurans to create sustainable solutions to the challenges that they're facing. I mean, the first answer to any of the challenges is going to be Jesus, right, in whatever nation you're in. But when Jesus shows up, when the kingdom of God shows up, then you have salvation, then you have healing, then you have dignity, then you have uh, uh, you, you have less division across racial lines because the kingdom of God has shown up. If you have what we would call the kingdom of God, but then you still have all of this subsequent conflict, you're bringing something else. Right. And so you really need to show up cultivating those genuine relationships and realizing that to solve some of the challenges that we work with our partners in Honduras on, it's not our solution, like our, the Americans' solution. It's our collaborative solution. And that team involves people from the United States and people from Honduras working at it together. Right. And I think it's important that you have connect ministries like Connect Global that 
that can establish those relationships. And then when we send a short-term missions team down there, I've already established that you can put us right to work. Exactly. We can get the work done that you guys need done, you know, partner with you guys, and then we can come back and just prepare another short-term missions trip. So that's awesome. Um, When you said Cuba, just I reminded me of uh, President Obama. He kind of opened up some stuff up with Cuba and America. How did that affect you guys down there, and how did that affect the mission field in Cuba? Yeah, our work in Cuba is a collaboration with my parents' ministry with Worldwide Voice in the Wilderness is the name of their ministry. So my my father started traveling into Cuba before Obama was the president. Uh, Again, through relationships, he had a minister friend. Uh, a, a gentleman who actually just recently passed away, Dr. Russ Fraze, who's an amazing missionary. And Dr. Fraze has been working in Cuba already for many, many years. And because he had the relational connections there, he invited my father to come in to train pastors on how to do prison ministry work. And so we have traveled with my, my father. You know, the first time I went to Cuba, I thought, I'm just going to help my dad, right? And I love my dad, so anytime I can travel with him, that'd be great. But when we get down there, part of what we do at Connect Global is we have a, a heart to raise up missionaries from Latin America, from all parts of, of Spanish-speaking and Portuguese-speaking Latin America, to send as missionaries into other nations. And so when we got to Cuba and we met uh, uh, the guy who was really our, our host there, again, that person of peace, and I started talking to him about sending missionaries from Latin America, he's like, man, that's exactly what we want to do here in Cuba. You know, I've got people in my church, and you, you got to think strategically a little bit on this. Okay, so, so Cuba is still a communist nation, which makes it difficult for us from the United States to be able to travel into Cuba. But there are nations that Cuban citizens can travel to that as U.S. citizens we can't. Mm. All right? So you, you've got some access points there that uh, if we can train missionaries from Cuba, for example, they might be able to get into countries like North Korea or China, or Venezuela, easier than uh, the, the the democratic world, say, of the United States, would be able to get into. Very, so very I want better for the Cuban people than what's going on right now. But in the meantime, since I don't have the ability to change the government in Cuba right now, I do have the ability to support pastors that are trying to raise up missionaries. Yeah. And so if we just think about some of those things strategically— and be willing to step into that relationship for where it is in the moment, then, you know, we can get a lot more, we can get a lot more done. That's interesting. Like, you know, as, as, uh, us Americans sitting back and enjoying all of our freedoms and different things like that, you don't think about that, those plays that you have to make to be able to move around worldwide. Right. right. Um, so I mean, when you, when you say connect global is because you're not connecting America to, these other countries you're connecting countries to countries right uh so that's a connect global it really makes a whole lot of sense speaking of uh you know our culture corner we got uh the missionary that came over here and got in trouble have you ever been in trouble by any kind of government you know for the ministry work that you've been doing uh no we haven't we we haven't had any issues we haven't personally had issues in honduras um we had an interesting encounter in Cuba uh, on my first trip there, and this was probably my father's fifth or sixth trip there. And we were invited to visit a school. Um, I'm sorry, not a school. We were invited to, to visit like a like a like a day facility for kids. So it was like a, in addition to their school, right. kind of a kind of a clubhouse or sort of camp deal for for kids. 
that was just there in the day. It wasn't residential. Um, it was, you know, every, as is everything in Cuba. It's all owned by the government. And as we're going through the the conversations with the people there, there was a particular person there who was silent the whole time. Like, like this person didn't say a word. Uh, they were one of the hosts there, didn't say a word the whole time. And then there was another person who was doing all of the, all of the conversation. And so we got our whole team there and uh, we're sitting in this room. And, and as I'm just watching the person who was doing all of the communicating, we had a translator for us between English and Spanish, but I could tell by their body language that they understood the English fine because their body language was already responding to everything that we were saying in English before the translations, right? So you just kind of pick up on that. And so one of the team members that we had on our team uh, is now an amazing minister, but he used to be in the mafia. And uh, so he's he's a pretty street smart kind of dude, right? This, yeah. this guy who was on our team. And uh, so he comes up to me later and he goes, who's the guy who, who who's, that, who's the person who's not saying anything, who's just totally silent? I said, I don't know. He goes, I, I don't know who they are, but that's who's actually really running the show. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? So he starts breaking down, you know, from, from a very sort of mafioso kind of perspective of the meeting that we're in. No, I just didn't. He's the shot caller. You know what I'm saying? This guy was the shot caller, right? Yeah. So I go to our host afterwards and I'm like, all right, man, you, you got to explain this to me like I'm dumb. You know, what what just happened? And he goes, oh, no, they were checking you guys out. The whole thing was to really to, to, to check you guys out. And I'm like, well, who was this dude who didn't say anything? He's like, he's the shot caller. That's the guy who was actually in charge. And I'm like, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, th- how did we do? He goes, oh, y- you guys passed. He said, otherwise, we would have left that facility and gone straight to the airport. And then they would have just sent you home. This is like on day two of a, like a 10-day trip. Man. So, you know, in different, I told him, I said, well, you know, I had sent some emails to you and some of our other hosts. He goes, oh, yeah, I know. They read all of those. <laughs> They've got copies. They got to got the copies. So I'm like, okay. So some of those things are just eye opening. That when you're traveling uh, outside of of the culture that you know, yeah. you just you got to think about what's going on around you, and you have to be um, culturally sensitive and relationally sensitive and honor your your host. Because we honestly we could have done some things to put our host in a lot of trouble. Mm. You know, and and they would have just sent us home, but they could have put him in prison. You know right. what I'm saying? So you've just got to be careful like that. You got to honor those relationships. And again, it just it, it goes back to relationship. But we we haven't been arrested or had to face trial. I got pulled over for uh, just because I think one time but, driving you know, on the wrong be, side of the road. You know, like that's the American side. Get over to the left. I said, well, I'm on the right side of the road, and I'm not speeding, and you're just pulling me over for the fun of it. But you know, it worked out. It worked out. That's good. So tell us a little about uh, about your work that's going on in Honduras. Well, we talked about the hospital that you, you guys were um, that you basically got built. You didn't even have to fund it or anything like that, but you prayed into existence, and you're down there serving mothers and. Um, just some really good stuff that you were sharing with us last night. Yeah, so we do a lot of things in Honduras. We have an educational scholarship. We provide scholarships for, uh, uh, right now, uh, uh, about 30 children um, in Honduras so they can get a, a Christian education. We build aquaponic systems. We do training and teaching seminars. But uh, one project that we, we just really have a big heart for and we really love is this maternity home at the hospital. So this is at the hospital Atlantida in the state of Atlantida. Again, they're in the city of La Ceiba on the north coast. And what happened was we were partnered with an organization called 
the Honduran, uh, the Foundation for Honduran Children with Cancer. And so this is a nonprofit organization that helps children fighting cancer. They had an office at the hospital. We would go and volunteer and just serve and, you know, help their facilities and help care for the kids or do a fun day or just whatever that they needed. And as we were there, we started noticing that outside of the NICU of the hospital, there were always mothers like camping. I mean, they're like sleeping on the tile floor or on the on the wooden bench and they're just hanging out in front of the NICU. So we start inquiring of the hospital uh, what's going on? It, it goes back to your question earlier. How, you know, how do you figure out what the needs are? Sometimes you just pay attention. Yeah. You know, you're doing one thing, but you're seeing what's going on around you, right? And so we see all these moms. We're asking the hospital, "What's the deal?" And they said, "Well, here's the situation: if a mother delivers a child at the hospital, and the child is born premature or is underweight or has a medical condition or whatever, the child goes into the NICU, but the mother is now no longer a patient of the hospital, so she is discharged from the hospital." She can stay on the hospital property, but she doesn't have a bed to stay in anymore. And there's not like a Ronald McDonald house or anything like that at, at this hospital. And so the mothers would just sleep on the tile floor for two days to two weeks right outside and, of the NICU. And let me interrupt you and just ask this question. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming like some of these mothers are traveling long distances from different villages and stuff. Yes, yes. So this is like a main regional hospital. Uh, there's about 600,000 people in, say, about three states in this part of the country uh, where where mothers travel to. Plus any of the more rural clinics, this is a, this is a fairly rural area. There's just a couple of, of you know, cities kind of scattered throughout. Uh, if there's clinics in those more rural areas, if there's a complication or a special situation, or again, a child's born premature, that child needs some extra medical care, they're brought to this hospital. This is like the main regional hospital. Got it. So these mothers, you know, yeah, they would have, they would have, you know, I've met moms before who've walked two, you know, two, three hours out of the mountains to the bus stop, and then they're three or four hours on the bus. Uh, pregnant. Pregnant. Man. And then deliver that night. Come on, you, you, know? you wow. Come on, you, you American women. Toughen up. <laughs> come on. <laughs> and, and, and by bus, it's a, it, most of the buses in Honduras are retired U.S. school buses. So, you know, you think about being an adult on a school bus yeah. and it's bouncing around uh-huh. and there's no AC. I mean, it's, it's rough. Yeah. So then they'll get there and deliver and then the baby, you know, needs to stay. Well, mom's not going home without the baby, right? So then she's just there. You know, she's just wow. living on the floor. Wow. So the hospital asked us, you know, would you guys build this maternity home? And we just said yes. I mean, we didn't even know really what we were getting into. We are just like, yeah, I mean, we got to do this. You know what I'm For saying? Sure. And yeah. um and no it, it was yeah, it wasn't even like, yeah, we could do that. You know, it was like yeah. I mean, how do you can't say how do you can't say no to a request like that? You just say yes and then try to figure it out. You call David and be like, Bro, I need two hundred thousand dollars, man. <laughs> you know, it's just like write the check, bro. Yeah, you know, right. so I mean it was kinda like that. So we started uh we started raising funds for the project and uh a, a good amount of money came in. Um not enough to complete it on on our uh, budget that we had, we've never built a building like that, so we didn't really know. And um, uh, we got to a point that we felt like we had enough funds to start construction. And so we started getting the permits, and we were talking to an architect, uh, an architect there in the in in La Ceiba to you know get the plans and everything all drawn up to do it right and do it proper. And we get to about twenty four hours from putting shovels in the ground, and we get a call from the hospital that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was going to come in and build the whole property. Uh, you know, at their expense, just build it and here you go. So we're like, 
blown away. I mean, we're just like mind blown. So I tried to call my senator. I tried to call the Army Corps of Engineers. I'm trying to get some verification on this. Like, is this for real? And I could never really get, you know, a verification or talk to somebody or find the right person. And a couple months later, we were down there. And so the verification for us is that we show up and it's full on construction. I mean, they got a construction site. So so you weren't there when you got that news? No, I was here in the U.S. because we partner again with people that are in Honduras. So we, I live here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We have a team in Honduras. Our national director, who's Honduran, uh, was there. He calls me and he's like, they're going to build a building. The hospital told them, they said, well, we have this missions organization that's going to build it, you know, and the U.S. Army says, whatever, we're building the building. You know, I mean, this is like how it's going to be. So we're like, well, praise okay. the Lord. So we uh, entered into a contract with the hospital um, that we're the full sort of service providers, if you will. So we run the whole ministry. It's our building. You know, technically it belongs to the hospital. We were never interested in a building. It's not about a you know, having a building, it's about being able to care for the moms. And um, so we got all that squared away. Uh, and so on September 11th of 2019, we opened up the Connect Global Maternity Home, started taking moms in. And uh, to date, we've cared for a uh, little over 830 mothers wow. inside that maternity home just in the year of, of 2020 with all of the the quarantines and lockdowns. And Honduras was a much more strict quarantine than even what we had in the United States. We cared for over 500 mothers just in that 12-month time period. Wow. And uh, I, I, I tell you guys, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing ministry. I'm so proud of our team. We have seven full-time uh, ladies, a director, and then six uh, ladies on kind of our main team that are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just to be there with the moms. It's not a medical facility. Uh, but there's 24 beds inside the facility. We cook for them. We pray with them. We share the gospel with them. You know, the Bible says to laugh with those who laugh and to weep with those who weep. And so our team, there's times that they're laughing and celebrating because the mom's going home with her baby. But there are times that our team members are there weeping with the mother because her baby didn't survive. Wow. And so our team steps in and... Uh, you know, we'll we'll buy coffins. Mm. Our national director will will um, when when they buys the coffins, it's just a box, and it's literally like a pine box. And so he'll decorate it. He'll he'll put some fabric in there to make it nice, mm. so that it's dignifying. Great. And so so our team is right there with the mothers in in such a critical critical moment. You know, but we've had some uh, just amazing, amazing testimonies. That video we, we shared last night that <laughs> blows me away every time. Yeah. This lady Blanca had come in, and uh, she's a young lady in early twenties. She has her baby, um, and uh, he had to stay in the NICU. So she was in the maternity home uh, around two weeks or so. And the doctors called our maternity home team and said, "Look, you need to to talk to Blanca. You need to prepare her because her baby's going to die today." And our our team just decided. We're not going to do that. We're, we're just going to pray. So they start praying. About two hours later, the hospital calls again back over to the house. It's right there on the property, but, you know, it's a couple hundred yards away, whatever. So they call, and they say, okay, we need to send Blanca and her son to the next larger hospital, which is in San Pedro Sula, about three hours away. So our team uh, just collects the money because it's not like, you know, you think about using an ambulance here, your insurance is probably going to cover it or whatever the situation. They don't have insurance in Honduras, you know, so you just got to pay for it. You can put it on a credit card. Yeah, you can put it on a card, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, you know, so our, our team 
just kind of passes the hat, you know, and comes up with enough funds to buy the ambulance ride, sends Blanca and her baby to the hospital in San Pedro Sula. So that's a dangerous trip already in and of itself. And um, she gets to the hospital, and then the next day calls back and says, my baby is doing great. Wow. I mean, they, they just, a miracle of God, the baby made this recovery. And she was able to go home. As we like to say it, she was able to go home with her baby in her hand and Jesus in her heart. Yes, yeah, good. And uh, I was down there uh, recently, and she had stopped by to visit home, so I had to meet her and meet the baby. And so we just get testimonies like that over and over and over and over and over again. And so it's just been a, it's been a great honor is what it really is. It's an honor for us to serve these mothers, the mothers of Honduras, to be able to, to express love for them and for them to know that it, at such a critical point in their own lives, and at the starting point for their child's life, it was a Christian missionary who stepped in to share with them the love of Jesus. Now, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. That's a that, great story. Yeah, that is. That's an amazing story. So we just got a couple minutes left with, with you. Um, you shared last night a little bit about 2020 being a transition. A lot of people have been through a lot of things in 2020. You know, we've, you know, we all know somebody that's been sick with COVID or maybe lost loved ones or different things like that. And, and we just think, man, the, the enemy just won't leave me alone. Just any, you know, it's always, we're blaming the devil on everything. Uh, and I think you had a great perspective of, of that transition period in 2020. Sh- share us a little bit on that on your way out. Yeah, for sure. So first of all, let me just say that COVID, um, COVID sucks. First of all, yeah, if I can just say it, man. I don't know how, I don't know what level, I don't know what rating your, your podcast is, so I can get that. We haven't right had here, it, but the only ones that haven't had it. Yeah. yeah. So I've had it, and so to have it is, you don't want it. I'm just going to tell you right now, just don't get it. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> just, don't get, wear just your mask, out, wash your box. hands, yeah. I'll pass, I don't want it. Um, I probably had it at some point, and just was one of those no symptom people. Because yeah. there was a time where like, Pretty much everybody. My everybody had it, but me and you and like one other person, right? Yeah, so th- yeah. the odds are, I probably had it. At some you point, had it. You can see it in your eye, bro. You can see it. <laughs> I still got that little COVID spec. <laughs> <laughs> I got the chip or whatever. No, I mean it's you know COVID is just ugly, um, and it doesn't even matter. Honestly, it doesn't even matter if it was somebody made it or a monkey gave it or whatever the origin story was. It's a bad deal. There's no doubt about it. COVID is ugly. Um, I like a lot of people have lost close family members and friends who have passed uh, from this. Um, I've had it. Uh, I have close family members who've had it and, and recovered. Um, but, you know, it, it, COVID is what it is. It's a virus. That, that's, that's all it is. But there's something bigger going on. There's this, there's this bigger shift. And uh, so I, re- I really felt like the Lord told me in early 2020 that he said all of the world has shifted into a new era of spiritual history. And, and when you look back over the history of, of humanity since creation, you see that while God never changes, right, he's the same, he's the, the, the same God, he does do things differently at different times. He has prioritized different elements and used different methodologies for delivering the gospel to the world at different eras in history. And I believe that 2020 was a year of transition. It was a year when we have shifted uh, into a new spiritual era. Honestly, I don't know that we even have the right vocabulary for what it's going to be. But when you think about 
um, the 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 birth of the church uh, on the day of Pentecost. They didn't have the vocabulary then either. I mean, even the word church is not it's not a Bible word. That's a German word. Uh, so the terminology that they had is not even the same terminology that we have today. And I think that the the shift as as best I can I can verbalize it is that I think it's a shift of how people are oriented in regards to the church and interacting with uh, with the gospel. And for the last two thousand years, church has been about uh, you know sending the gospel message out and then bringing people into the church. You know, even today, right? You see um, you see churches around the world. Uh, doing great. You see churches around the world that can duplicate themselves very rapidly and sustain that organizationally and be able to impact their community. But that's a lot about establishing a church congregation and then inviting that community around into that church congregation. And I think the difference is the orientation that we're going to see the, 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 the church globally becoming much more of a deployment center much more about equipping people to send them out. You know, right now, we so oftentimes, whether good or bad, we so oftentimes look at, well, this is our pastor or this is our spiritual leader or whatever. So they're the ones who are really full of the Holy Spirit. They're the ones who really have the message. And that's okay. Jesus said that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Well, Paul said that about him, that Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But why did he do that? Right for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, so that we all come to the maturity in Christ. So, if Jesus gave these leaders, great, praise God, and I thank God for the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers in my life. But then it comes a point that that like, how do you say it? The common man, you know, this the regular dude in church, the plumber, the 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 brick mason, the attorney, the you know, the podcaster, the the just like. You know, I'm not that dude. I'm not, you know, this super spiritual guy or whatever, or that, you know, that guy who walks on water. It's coming a time that every believer full of the Holy Spirit is then deployed from the church. And that's the difference, I think, is the orientation of direction. Instead of it being about people coming in, it's about people going out. Some of those people are going to go out cross-culturally, like we've been talking, like like God's called us to do, to go to another nation. But for some people, it's going to be, man, go to go home and invite your next-door neighbor over for dinner, smoke a brisket, and talk about Jesus. Amen. Pray for them. See them healed, you know, and, and see them delivered. Says the plumber over there, amen. You know what I'm saying, right? The plumber, he's plumber. like, I don't know if he's amen in the neighbor or the brisket, you know? <laughs> I think it was the brisket. The neighbor and the brisket. The neighbor and the brisket. More the brisket, not yeah, the yeah. But it's like, you know, we all have these concentric circles in our life. So what if instead of inviting our neighbor to church, we just are full of the Holy Spirit and we take the gospel to them? That's good. And what if they never even step foot in this building, but they are still brought into the family of God? Mm. What if the family gathering time just looks looks different? You know, so we can we can step back and blame COVID for the fact that, you know, we have smaller in-person gatherings than we used to. But what if maybe and I'm not saying God brought COVID on us. All right. You guys hear what I'm saying? What if the orientation difference that God's trying to incorporate is that the micro is the new macro, the personal gathering, the smaller gathering? You know, four, five, six guys or gals or, 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 or families, you know, sitting around a bonfire and talking about the Lord and praying and singing. 
you know, with the ukulele or something like that. Man, that'd be awesome. You know, it doesn't always have to be, man, we got a thousand people in the building. Praise God. That's fun. I like that. You know, I like the big crowd. Great. But uh, I always remember T.D. Jakes right at the beginning of all of the quarantines. He said, one thing is for sure. The church experience has moved into the home. You got to think about how precious that is. If the same power and anointing of God that I've experienced in a congregational gathering, I now experience around my coffee table with my wife and my son. That's precious. That's yeah. special. That's bringing the gospel into my home. Personal. Personal. Yeah. And what if I could then bring that gospel into my neighbor's home, into my coworker's home? into my enemy's home, into somebody who I disagree with, into somebody into somebody's home that, that I didn't vote the same way. You know what I'm saying? We're on a different political party or we're a different race or we're a different age or we're a different gender or whatever, but I could bring that gospel into their home. And I think that's at least a part of the shift that, that, that we're going to see moving into where you know, we've, we've all seen those testimonies. We've experienced those testimonies where a person was sick or a person, you know, had an addiction or whatever. They come to church, somebody lays hands on them, prays for them, boom, they're healed. But what if we experience that like at Starbucks, yeah. like at Walmart or on the job, you know? It's, a, it's amazing to think about what you're saying and, and the devil, you know, maybe using COVID, but now God is taking what the devil meant for evil. That's right. And he's bringing it back to the root because ultimately what that is is discipleship. Right. You know, when you have fellowship one-on-one and, and personal relationships like that, it's a discipleship relationship and not necessarily, you know, how many years have we talked about the 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 corporate Christian, so to speak, that comes in and he's here on Sunday Oh, man, I wish Pastor would hurry up. Gosh, let's just go ahead and go. I'm waiting on my tamales or I'm waiting on my, my brisket, you know. And, and he leaves, and he leaves Jesus here, and then he goes to work and, and whatever, but he'll be back next Sunday, so it's okay. You know, and, and we've we've kind of adapted to that mindset that it's it's the Sunday Christian that's okay, when in reality that guy's hurting, you know, hurting himself more than he's helping himself. Yeah. But when we make it that personal relationship and what the devil meant for evil and and trying to, you know, snuff something out with COVID, God is using for good to bring us back to the roots of discipleship, bringing it back into the home, bringing it back to the coffee table Bible studies. Man, that's deep. I've seen, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I've seen an interview with Rick Warren Mm -hmm. that he's seen uh, more salvations in 2020 than he did in any other year of his ministry. 3,000 people were saved. And it was all done through home groups. Yeah. Because they yeah. he has churches all over the world. Well, when his churches in, in, in um, China started shutting down, he realized that this is going to be global. When it got outside of China, he was just like, okay. So, of course, they have a lot of resources over there. But they began to write home group stuff that because they knew that's where everything was going to go. And then so they started really impacting their community that way. And also, they became the largest food pantry in America. Wow. Um, and they've seen this explosion of, of salvations. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. It is awesome. Interesting conversation. Well, Brother Travis, we just appreciate you stopping by and giving us a few minutes. I do want to shout out to India and Russia and United Kingdom, Mexico, Netherlands, Finland, New Zealand, and all you other countries that are tuning in every single well, week. Honduras. 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 <laughs> yeah, we'll get Honduras and Cuba uh, coming through here pretty soon after we share this uh, with, with your people. So uh, thank you for coming. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I appreciate you guys letting me be on here. I just wanted to say if anybody want to connect with us or find out information, you can jump on our website. It's connectglobal.org, connectglobal.org. You can get all the information. Uh, once travel starts opening up better, we'll have some, some trips uh, scheduled you know, on the books again. So if people want to travel down there with us, man, we, we would love it. But we love Elam Church. We love the convocation. I so appreciate you guys. Uh, and and your kindness to all of the guests that come in. I've been coming here for, I don't know, eight or ten years, something like that. And uh, so it's just great to get to be a part of this and appreciate being on the on the podcast today. All right. Very good. We'll see you next time. We love you. Hey, hey, yeah. This is The Refuge Project. All right. Was that Tara? That was Tara. That was Tara, dude. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. He called.